Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, people of God. The Lord is with you. You and I, being humans, we're drawn to a good fight like a moth to a porch light, aren't we? I remember in junior high school uh, that there would be some times where we're out after lunch, out on the playground, out on the field, and two guys would get into it and they'd start to duke it out and the whole group of everyone else would just gather around them like that. And you think that might be junior high school behavior, but grown-up people pay lots of money to watch two boxers or wrestlers in a ring try to knock each other out or knock each other down. And talk radio and presidential debates pull us in. We want to take sides pretty quickly and root for one side or the other to prevail. We just love a good fight. That's just what it is about us being human. As a pastor, I used to sometimes hear from people that were regular attenders at church business meetings. They came every time there was a business meeting. And they would complain sometime that there weren't more people at the business meetings. And uh, I would, they thought it was apathy. I said, well, it could just as well be trust. They think things are going all right. But I said, if you want a large attendance at a business meeting, I can get a good church fight started and they'll be there. You know, we would hope that people who are learning to follow Jesus Christ could find a better way of dealing with our differences than to fight or to separate or to attack. But um, our relationships don't have a good track record over the past 2,000 years, do they? They really don't. We get crossways with each other. That's a phrase I think I learned from my mother. She would talk about getting crossways with people. We get crossways with each other and we attempt to do each other in or prove that we're right. Uh, Congregations fight and divide and split. Whole denominations fight and divide and split. All these people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ. But sometimes that divisive spirit is on a much smaller scale. All it takes is two people Two of us who get crossways with each other. Two former friends who are no longer speaking to each other because of something that's come up in between them. A husband and a wife get crossways with each other and they spend the rest of their marriage in an icy distance or intense conflict, maybe even a contentious divorce. But even these small fights tend to draw a crowd. People take sides and the pain gets spread around a good bit. Surely there's a better way for followers of Jesus Christ to handle and manage our relationships when we get crossways with each other. There are four classic passages in the New Testament that deal with exploring this mystery we call the incarnation. God becoming flesh and coming among us. Mysterious thing happened once in all of human history. God's only done this one time, and it's mystery beyond imagination. And there are four passages in the New Testament that deal with that. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. 
Now, two of those passages, the ones in John and Colossians, deal with the issue of God becoming flesh and coming among us and the mystery of that. Deal with that in a, in a conflict, a conflict over doctrine, over truth, over who Jesus really is. There were some of these Gnostics, they were called, who said that Jesus was not really human. He only appeared to be human. He was only divine. And there were others who said, no, he was not divine at all. He was only human. And the divine spirit came upon him at his baptism and left before he died on the cross. And both of those were considered heresy. And John, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, are addressing this false teaching that had grown up in the church and was dividing the church. The passage in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 is dealing with the church facing persecution. Jewish Christian believers are facing persecution and are considering leaving the practice of their Christian faith and going back to their Judaism in order to avoid the persecution. And the book of Hebrews is written to call these people to persevere through the persecution and to hang on tightly and to follow Jesus Christ faithfully. And it's in that context that we're told that Jesus is the final revelation of God. There's nothing to go back to. And then there's this passage in Philippians. It's got a very different context. It's one of the loftiest, most beautiful, poetic passages in the New Testament dealing with any subject, but particularly dealing with the mystery of God becoming human and living among us. It has echoes from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis and from the book of Isaiah. And there are many interpreters of the New Testament who think that Philippians uh, 1, 2, 1 through 11 contains an ancient Christian hymn that was actually sung in congregations about Christ being in the form of God becoming human, dying on the cross, and being exalted as Lord. Let's listen to verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read the first four, and then I'm going to ask you to join me beginning in verse 5. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete by having the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. <clears throat> Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then read together. Who, though he was in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
You see, it wasn't a raging theological debate in Philippi that led Paul to write this beautiful passage about God becoming human and, and living among us, dying on the cross, and then being exalted to the right hand of God and given the title, Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't a raging theological debate. It was the th wasn't the threat of persecution. It was something that's much more familiar to you and me. And that is the context that describes this beautiful birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus was the context of ordinary relationships getting crossways within the Christian community, the church. And I've reviewed this every week, but just to keep the story alive, be reminded, Paul founded this church on his second missionary journey when he was led into Macedonia by a vision from God in the night. And he and his team went there and they preached first to some women gathered by a riverside and then in the streets and uh, then in other places and gradually a church was formed. He continued a relationship with this church over the years that followed as they would send money to support his ministry and he would make visits there on occasion to reunite with them. But now he is in prison in Rome and they have heard of it in Philippi and they sent one of their key leaders, a man named Epaphroditus to bring an offering to help support Paul because he was under house arrest and living at his own expense. They brought an offering, but Epaphroditus also came with information about the church and how things were going there among Paul's friends in that community. And one of the things he had to sadly report that there was the beginning of a division in the church. There were these two women in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, and they had somehow gotten crossways with each other. And people were taking sides, and there was the beginning of a kind of disunity. Epaphroditus fell ill while he was in Rome, nearly died, and was a long time in returning. So when he's ready to go back home, Paul writes this letter we call Philippians for Epaphroditus to deliver. It, it's a thank you note. Thank you for the gift that you've sent to me and for your concerns and your prayers. It's a missionary letter. Here's how things are going with me so you can pray uh, with knowledge. But it's a letter encouraging unity in the church. Yodi and Syntyche are mentioned by name. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, we read that a couple of weeks ago, Paul expresses his love for all of them and his confidence that God is working to accomplish his purpose in this community and will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 9, he prays for them. and He said, this I pray, that your love may abound more and more, that their love in that congregation would abound overflowing. In chapter 1, verse 27, he encouraged them, whether I come and see you or whether I hear about you, I want to know that you are standing together in the ministry of the gospel as one mind, as one body, uh, that there is unity there. In chapter 2, verse 14, he tells them not to argue or complain, but let their lives become an example to the dark world around them, standing out like stars in the night sky. So he's kind of circled around this thing about arguing, complaining, love overflowing, unity. And now he zeroes in in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. That's a phrase he's used lots of times already, the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, <clears throat> probably addressing the pastor in the congregation. Help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, 
together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, when we read Paul's letters, we open a book and read from them or have them on the screen. But when those letters were originally delivered to those congregations, the deliverer of the letter would usually be the one who stand, stood before the congregation and opened the scroll and read it aloud, the whole letter of Philippians. They'd say, we're going to read the first three sentences today, and next week we'll read some more. No, they would read the whole letter to the congregation. So you can imagine this congregation, Philippi, gathered perhaps at Lydia's home or someplace in the city, and they've gathered for worship, and word's gotten out during the week that Epaphroditus has returned from Rome and he's been with Paul and he has a letter to read and people are there ready to hear from their friend Paul. And he's reading this letter aloud and he's read a good bit of it already. And then he gets to chapter four and names get called. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche. I know they were sitting on opposite sides of the room and their friends with them to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you, I encourage you, my fellow loyal friend, to help these women to reconcile because they have been, they've served alongside me in the gospel. There's no point in their remaining crossways with each other. It's a very personal kind of word to deliver to that church. And the passage at the heart of that encouragement is the one that we're looking at this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's at the heart of the book. It's almost in the middle of it. But it's also because it's about the cross is at the heart of the gospel. This is the way people who believe the gospel are called to live. This is how we're supposed to work out our relationships. Paul understands the gospel of Jesus Christ has this essential relational component to it. That the moment we came to know God as Father through faith in the Son, Jesus Christ, and new birth by the Holy Spirit, the moment that became our experience, we were immediately brought into God's family so that every other one who believes in Him is now our brother or sister. It has an inherent component of relationship to it. When we learn to pray as Jesus taught us to pray, our Father which art in heaven, as soon as we say our Father, we've already implied my brothers and my sisters, everyone else who addresses him as Father. And so Paul understands God's purpose in history to be relational, to create a community of people who love him wholeheartedly and who love each other unselfishly. And the understands that the cross has these two dimensions to it. There is vertically Christ's death on the cross reconnects, reconciles us with God. But horizontally, the moment we accept the truth of that cross and find the forgiveness of sin and become sons and daughters of God, it connects us horizontally with this community that he is forming called the church. And all of God's children become our brothers and sisters. And because the cross is connected in that way, vertically and horizontally, when we break one of those relationships, we automatically damage the other. If we fail to love one another, we break the horizontal connection. But at the very moment we do that, we also break the vertical connection. It's not that we cease to be God's sons and daughters, but we are out of fellowship, out of relationship with the one who is our father because we are out of relationship with those who are our brothers and sisters. 
The New Testament's clear that we can't love God whom we have not seen if we fail to love brothers and sisters whom we have seen. That's a direct quotation from John in 1 John. And to understand rightly the meaning of Jesus dying for us is not only to find ourselves related to God in a new way, it is to find ourselves related to one another in a new way, exclusively. Euodia and Seneca have gotten crossways with each other. They have some unresolved issue that they're steaming about. We don't know what it is. Something that separated them from each other and along the way because of its influence has separated others in the church probably. Paul urges them to pay attention to what Jesus did for us and to let that reality affect their particular relationship. To go back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, hear this again in that context. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, that is, if being in Christ with each other has resulted in our lives receiving encouragement from each other, if that's been your experience, if there's any consolation from love, if you've ever been brokenhearted or sad and a Christian brother or sister has stepped in and demonstrated consolation through the love of Christ, that's been your experience. If there's any sharing in the spirit, if you've ever been together in worship and you have joined your hearts together in the worship of God, that's been your experience. If there's any compassion and sympathy, if you've ever walked alongside someone and seen them brokenhearted and given yourself to them, if that's been your experience, then Paul says, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Don't be out to get your own way or to be right all the time or conceit. Don't consider yourselves better than the others, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves or more important than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That, Paul says, is the way that Christ's death on the cross has poured itself over into the riches of our lives and our experience with him and with one another. We've received encouragement and consolation and love and we've worshiped together in the same spirit and we've served alongside each other in the midst of human hurts and needs and met needs out of compassion and sympathy. That's been our experience together. We've done this together. If that's true, he says, then make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, that doesn't mean we all think just exactly alike. It means we have a common purpose. We're minding, paying attention to the same thing, which is following after Jesus Christ and his mission in the world. Be of the same mind. Have the same love, mutual love for each other. Let this way of thinking be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And then there is that beautiful Christ hymn, who being in the form of God, and it goes on. There's a recent revision of the New International Version that translates the last phrase, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. It translates verse 5 as, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is urging them and us to get crossways with each other. Now, we know how to get crossways with each other, right? 
We get at cross purposes. We get at uh, cross ideas. We clash. We get crossways. But Paul points to Jesus and says, I want you to get crossways with each other. I want you to let the same mind be in you that was in him, who, though he was had equality with God, did not regard equality with God as something to exploit, but he made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He humbled himself and became human. And being in the form of a servant, he became obedient to God, obedient to death, even death on the cross. And that's why God has been able to exalt him to the position of Lord. And so Paul says, I want that mindset to be in you, crossways with each other, letting the cross and the example it provides become the thing that guides our relationships when we get crossways with each other. We're going to do that. The question is, how do we manage it? And we manage it by going back to the cross. We do well to read this passage and notice the story of these two women and consider what it would mean in our own lives to get crossways with each other in the right way. We might learn to think about the ways in which our relationship with Christ has enriched our lives. As in verse 1, it's often translated, if there be any encouragement in Christ, any... But the language in, in Greek is an affirmation of that. It's, it could be translated because there is encouragement, since there is encouragement in Christ, since you've experienced these things, since when you reflect on your experience as a Christian in the community of other Christians, you can recall that tenderness and warmth and encouragement and consolation and compassion and sympathy and worship in the Spirit of God that you've all experienced together. Let, let that be up here at the center of your mind. Think about that. Be reminded of these riches that have come to us as part of the community in Christ of God's people. And then he says, let those riches overflow into relationship with each other. Be like-minded, have the same love, the same spirit, the same purpose. Focus together on the same thing. When you are focused on your agenda and I'm focused on mine, and those are at cross purposes with each other, we both failed to be like-minded. We've both failed to have one spirit, one purpose. What we try to do is make the other person like-minded by making them believe and think just like we do. But there's a third way, and the third way is that we go back to our purpose for being together in the first place, which is to follow Jesus Christ, to follow Jesus Christ, to obey Jesus Christ, to be engaged in the mission of Jesus Christ. And if it's anything else that's on your agenda or mine that is outside of that, it is the thing that causes us to get crossways with each other. What we need to do is keep returning to what is central, what is core, be like-minded. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, he says. This is the way we let those riches overflow into our relationships. We let go of our agenda. We let go of our selfish ambition, the desire to be right, the desire to have my own way, the desire to have things done my way at church. My way, my way. That's selfish ambition. That's vain conceit. And it has to be surrendered because Jesus didn't hold on to that himself. But in humility, he said, consider others and their needs. Humility is a tough character trait. C.S. Lewis says it's the most slippery of the virtues because just in the minute you think you've got it, you become proud and you lose it. Well, I'm, that's right. You can't brag about being the humblest person around. Humility is a practice. 
Dallas Willard said there, there are three things that we can do to practice humility, to practice it. Practice like you practice your music or practice your speech. Practice. One of the things he says, don't push to have your own way. That, that will crop up occasionally. That's the selfish ambition and vain conceit. Don't push to have your own way. Every once in a while say, it may be frequently, just practice saying, that's fine. We can do it your way. Uh, Richard Foster defined uh, submission as the capacity to be happy even if you don't get your own way. So the practice of submission, the practice of not having to have my own way of saying, it's okay if we sing those songs. It's okay if we don't sing those songs. It's okay if we do it that way. It's okay if we meet it this time. It's okay, I don't have to push to have my own way. That's the practice of humility. And second, don't presume privileges for yourself. That's vain conceit, to think that we're so important that it ought to be done our way and that we're the most important person around. We presume privilege. And he says, don't pretend to be something you're not to impress people. Learning to do those things, not pretending to be something we're not, not pushing to have our own way, not presuming privileges, the practice of that shapes us until we actually become more humble. And that's where Paul's words here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but practice humility. Consider others as more important than yourself. Don't just look out for your own interest, he said, but look out for the interest of others. There's a story about two monks, desert fathers, and they had been serving together in this monastery in the desert for a long, long time, and they were dear, dear friends. They had spent their lives together. And one day, one of them says to the other, you know, we should have an argument. And the other one said, why? He said, well, I hear that's what people do. They have arguments. Well, how do you do that? He said, well, maybe like this. He picked up a stone and he put it in between them. He says, I say, that's my stone. And then you say, no, that's my stone. And, and then we have an argument. Okay. So he put the stone out there and he said, that's my stone. And the other guy says, okay, you can have it. Uh, that's living crossways, not having to have your own way. Let the riches of our relationship in Christ overflow into our relationships with each other by having the same mind, the same purpose, focusing on the same thing, not acting in selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, considering one another is more important than ourselves. And then follow the example of Jesus. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, he says. There's a story in John chapter 13 of Jesus being in the upper room with his disciples that night before he was going to be crucified. He was going to the cross. And he got into the upper room and the disciples were having an argument about which of them was the greatest. They dashed for the most important seats around that table so they could sit closest to Jesus in the most important places. Luke tells about that. But John tells about what Jesus did. In their dash to get the most important seats, uh, they had failed to wash their feet, which you had to do because you're laying on the floor, leaning into the table, and your feet are extended. So Jesus, John 13, knowing that he had come from God, John says, knowing that he was going back to the Father, 
got up from the table. He took off his outer robe. He girded himself. He took a towel and a basin of water and began to go one by one to his disciples and wash their dirty feet. It's, it's almost an acting out of Philippians 2. He who had divested himself of his divine robes, become human and dwelt among us, became a slave and became obedient to the point of death. And Jesus, having washed his disciples' feet, he said, do you know, do you know what I've done? And they said, um, no, we don't understand that. He said, if I, your master and Lord, that's what you call me, and that's correct, that's who I am, but if I, your master and Lord, have stooped to wash your feet, you ought also to wash the feet of one another. You need to be servants to one another. You need to serve one another. You need to decide that others' needs are more important than your own. You need to decide that your agenda is not the one that's to be pressed. Do you understand what I've done? He served. And essentially, that's what getting crossways with people means. It means serving them. What was Paul implicitly telling Euodia and Syntyche to do? Drop your selfish agenda. It's not about you. Be of the same mind, he tells those ladies. Be of the same mind. Focus your attention on Jesus Christ together and on his purpose. And then humbly serve one another. We, we don't have an outcome from that. But you want to know what happened? If I was making the movie, this is what I would do. I don't know what happened either. But after Paul gets to the end of chapter 4, I would imagine Yodi and Syntyche have been glancing at each other across the room for the rest of chapter 4. And then as soon as it's read, and as soon as there's an opportunity, those women embrace and apologize and say there's something more important than either of us, and we want to serve Christ wholeheartedly. What do you need, Euodia, that I can do for you? What do you need, Syntyche, that I can do for you? That's the response he calls them to, to humbly serve each other. Such a beautiful picture here. You know, we don't have to wait until there's a conflict to get working on get, getting crossways with each other. We, we don't have to have a problem before we start living this way. In fact, the more we live this way, the less we're going to get crossways with each other. So take this mindset, this attitude of Jesus to our relationships all the time. Husbands, get crossways with your wife. Wives, get crossways with your husbands. Humbly serve. Consider the other as more important than yourself. Abandon the selfish ambition and the vain conceit. Parents, serve your children. Care for them like Christ cared for us abandoning that and in humility serving those people you work with every day out in the world somewhere serve them in humility consider their needs as more important than your own your fellow students at school are people that Christ calls you to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church it's just a question of where are the relationships in my life that I need to be taking this word to most directly where do I need to get crossways with people? Now, if you do have a relationship somewhere where you've gotten crossways with someone and you need to mend it, the best way to get crossways with them is to get crossways. That is to humble ourselves, to serve them, mend the broken pieces. And if God points you this morning in your heart to any relationships like that, don't delay. Take care of those, those accounts quickly. 
We visit the cross this morning. We celebrate its vertical dimension. We recall the horizontal dimension. And we understand that every person I meet is created in God's image, someone for whom Christ died, someone with whom I am supposed to be crossways. Let's play, pray. Holy Father, um, our hearts are selfish hearts. That's why we needed your redemption in the first place. And because we're selfish, we think we're right, maybe only partially right or dead wrong. We push our own ways and our own agendas to make our lives most comfortable for us. And we easily overlook or ignore one another. That's who we are, God. We ask you to be shaping our lives more and more into the mind that was in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, you would help us learn to walk with humility, learn to walk in the light of the cross, and to serve freely and fully and joyfully one another as long as we have opportunity. Father, for any relationships that are bruised right now that are part of this body, that means the body's bruised, and we pray that you would work with bringing those things back into connection. We pray for the same things for our families and our marriages and our homes and our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. Lord, help us to learn to humble ourselves and to serve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.